Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. This is the fourth show on our ICE series. In order to understand the ICE series, I urge you to listen to the first show of the series and continue listening to the consecutive shows. The first show can be found online in the public archives of WEIU.org, Webinaki Windows, dated 2-28-23. This series is dedicated to the Webinaki people in Maine to help them understand the history of Webinaki state relations. It is my intention to read every word of the three transcripts on the air and then discuss the implications. The 1942 transcripts reveal the dialogue between the Legislative Research Committee members and the witnesses they called before them to discuss the Indian problem and the final solution. This is why the series is titled ICE, Isolation, Control, and Elimination. This is the second transcript in series of three. This transcript reveals the committee testimony of Attorney General Frank Cowan, who was the chief legal officer of the state of Maine in 1942. Our guests today include my co-authors of One Nation Under Fraud or Remonstrance, Judge Eric Menert, Attorney Joseph Gauss, as well as Professors Harold Prince and Darren Ranko. Eric Menert is Chief Judge of the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court. Attorney Joseph Gauss is a legal researcher and writing specialist. And prior to practicing law, he worked as a legislative researcher for the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Professor Harold Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and an emeritus at the University of Kansas. Professor Darren Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and Professor of Anthropology and Chair of Native American Studies at the University of Maine. Welcome to the show, everyone. So we're going to begin by uh, reading the uh, Attorney General uh, Frank Cowan's transcript. Uh, And the reading begins with uh, Mr. Donald Weber, who served as the attorney for the Joint Special Legislative Investigating Committee. We will read the entire transcript and discuss on the other side. Eric? Mr. Weber. Mr. Weber. Frank, we had this bill referred to us, and some of us at least are, in a state of utter confusion. You remember the bill. If you have any pearls of wisdom to let fall on that bill, we would be glad to listen to them. Mr. Cowan, I think I can give you some information in regard to the background. I do not remember the exact bill, but there have been quite a few individuals come into the tribe who have been adopted under that quarter blood law that have been troublemakers, so they say, and the present representative to the legislature is a Canadian Indian, and he has quite a long criminal record, which I have in my office. Now, it may be that this bill had some connection with that man, I couldn't say, But Shay and his friends were in to see me a year ago, and also some of the others. There were two factions there. I know some of them. Went to school with some of them when I was a kid. And they discussed these matters. But I do not know what their background of this particular bill is, unless it does lie in that. Mr. Weber, in our discussion this afternoon, 
we hopped right off from this into a discussion of some possible long-range program on this Indian situation. You made a study of this whole Indian thing when Governor Gardner was governor, and you probably know a lot about more about it than any of us do. I know you've got some thoughts of a possible long-range program because you've mentioned that to me. I think the committee would like to know what you think is a possible ultimate way out of the Indian thing. Mr. Cowan, I think the only proper solution of the Indian question is to give them recognition as citizens and try to work out some method of getting any of them that show any ambition at all off the island and away from the reservation. There are some pretty good people there on the island, but as long as they live there in that communal atmosphere and have everything passed to them, they will never amount to anything. They are just children and they will never develop. I think the only way we can ever do anything for them is to get them out and get them working for themselves. Mr. Weber, do you think we owe them any money? Mr. Cowan, oh yes, no doubt about that. Mr. Weber, do you think they could recover anything from us? Mr. Cowan, that would depend upon the industry of the people who investigated and probably the skill of the lawyers. I think we owe them some millions, probably. Mr. Weber, that is for timber rights and fishing rights? Mr. Cowan, an accumulation. Mr. Weber, of course, so far as the agreed stipend is concerned, we have paid them a great deal more annually than, than that would amount to, haven't we? Mr. Cowan, yes, we have paid them very well. I was looking yesterday at the original treaty between Massachusetts and the Indians, made in 1780. And as far as our attitude has been, our conduct the last few years, probably the last 50 years, we have used the Indians all right. I do not believe that they have, I do not believe there have been any new robberies to amount to anything in that time. It is the Penobscot Indians particularly. There was a man named Hunt who was an Indian agent for many years, and he had an excellent reputation for fair treatment of the Indians. And whether or not there was anybody who succeeded Hunt, or whether the state took over directly, I don't know. But I haven't heard of anybody who has robbed them in the last few years. And I do not think there has been any chance because there has been too close a watch kept, and the law has been pretty carefully worked out. But you go back into the earlier history of the state, and it would seem fairly apparent that they were robbed left and right. Mr. Weber, wasn't their timber sold off by state officials? Mr. Cowan, there was. And how far the federal court would go when upholding the treaties is a question. Now, an original Massachusetts treat from which ours really stems conveyed to Massachusetts all the land on the west side of the river, below the Piscataquis River, or whatever the name is, up there in Howland. And on the east side of the river, all below that river that comes in at Mattawamkeg, and reserved to them all the islands, including the island on which Old Town stood. And then there was a flaw, apparently, in the survey. And then they reserved all the islands on which the Indians themselves made improvements, which were north of that line. And they also reserved two islands in the mouth of the river. Now, I haven't read the later treaties recently, but as I recall, the second Indian treaty that Massachusetts made in 1800, and something changed that, and without any particular consideration, took away their lands except for some townships. I may be confused there, because the Passamaquoddy Treaty reserved two townships to the Pleasant Point Indians. But anyway, our treaty, which was made in 1820, really took over the Massachusetts treaties. 
The principal idea at that time seemed to be to get lands and the rights and pay nothing for them. I think Massachusetts, in 1780, gave 300 pounds of something or other, a few shirts and so on, but the consideration was so grossly inadequate that it was absurd. I have very serious doubt that if it were put up on contract relation, there would not be considerable difficulty. Of course, the courts would give us credit for the care that we have given to the Indians and all this money we have paid and things like that. And also, the fact the thing has stood for so many years and rights been gained. Of course, they would not be disturbed or any titles or things like that. But if a real energetic effort were made on behalf of the Indians, I am inclined to think the state of Maine would be stuck. Mr. Weber. In considering the advisability of an act like this, one here, no one mentioned, no mention is made in here of the preservation of any property rights. How far do you think we ought to go in fairness to them in preservation of their semi-titles? They don't have a complete fee, but they have a sort of transferable ownership. Here is a woman who marries a non-member and she owns a house and a lot over there. Mr. Cowan. She has a right under our statute that can be transmitted to her offspring. Her husband has no dower rights, as I recall. I don't remember he does, anyway. These rights can be sold subject to the approval of the state of Maine. We had the question come up the other day when the federal government wanted to take some land on one of their upper islands for an extension of the airport. The federal officials said, we will buy or condemn it. I told them they couldn't do either. We gave them a long-term lease. As long as the Indians stay on the island, I do not think they will ever amount to anything as citizens, and I think we are very right in not recognizing them as citizens in spite of the federal statute, because they are no good over there. They are just about like the Brown Tuttle colony up in Athens, a little higher grade, but they intermarry quite strongly and there is a lot of degradation. Chairman Dow, you think we ought to subscribe to the theory we ought to wipe them out? Mr. Cowan, no. Chairman Dow, what is an Indian anyhow? How long does he stay an Indian until he is melted down by intermarriage? Mr. Cowan, they don't seem to stay Indians very long. I've got a client who is a quarter Indian, lives up at Raymond, and certainly he is not an Indian. There is our friend Neil Bishop down here, who seems to have quite a lot of Indian blood in him. But there is his brother, Leonard, who does not seem to show any Indian characteristics. I think Neil told me his grandfather or great-grandfather was an Indian squaw. Mr. Weber, that is a freak of nature. Mr. Cowan, I was thinking of his grandfather and great-grandfather, then I remember. I think he said Princess Smutty Nose. That would make it a lady, apparently. Mr. Payson, did you make any written report to Governor Gardner? Mr. Cowan, on the Indians? No, sir. I was scared of it when I got in, into it and closed the door. Mr. Boucher, did you read the Webster-Ashburton Treaty? Mr. Cowan, I have. Mr. Boucher, isn't there a section in there regarding the Indians? Mr. Cowan, I wouldn't be able to say because I haven't read it for 30 or 40 years. Mr. Boucher, I was told there was a section in there, quite an important section, referring to the Maine Indians when they divided the line between New Brunswick and Maine and swung way up into the northern part. Mr. Cowan, that would be easy enough to find out because I have that treaty. It appears in one of our law books. 
It would be, I think, along about 1840. I think it is printed in the session laws. Mr. Payson, did you make any uh, your study from materials available in the state library, or did you have any outside materials? Mr. Cowan, right here in the state house and down in the land office, my study, as you call it, I was digging into things down there, and I kept running into this stuff, and I was checking up on the Indian Trust Fund trying to find the origin of it and find out why it was a certain amount, of course. And as I went back through the land office records, I began to get more and more dubious. I finally said, the Indian Trust Fund amounts to $138,000, period, and stopped right there. Mr. Payson, this is a skeleton in our closet. Mr. Cowan, well, I had a feeling it would be more than we wanted to see in that closet, so I closed the door. Mr. Payson, We were just talking about an expenditure of $100,000 a year capitalized at 2% in a vicinity of $50 million. So we thought we would like to find out something about it. Mr. Cowan, well, I can't give you anything definite. Chairman Dowd, did your study show you as far back as you could go? This Passamaquoddy tribe of Indians were still at this present location, or don't you remember? Mr. Cowan, oh, yes. The Passamaquoddy Indians have a good record. They were so far away, and the land and timber was of so little value during the first half of the century, they were not disturbed much. And the Indian tribes down there north of Princeton, there were two or three townships, and those have been administered pretty carefully. Chairman Dow, you mean Pleasant Point and Princeton? Mr. Cowan, yes. And I didn't see anything to criticize, except, of course, the original treaty. Chairman Dow. As far back as your study went, they were still there? Mr. Cowan, yes. That was the Savoy River, I think they call it. Chairman Dow, and the same is true of the other tribe? Mr. Cowan, wait a minute. We haven't any recorded treaty with the Pleasant Point Indians. We have just an arrangement with them. Chairman Dow, a written arrangement? Mr. Cowan, well, the legislature, the legislature passed something and the acts are resolves. Chairman Dowd, there is no treaty with them? Mr. Cowan, I don't know of any treaty with them. The Penobscot Indians, there have been three different treaties, two in Massachusetts and one in Maine. Sorry. Mr. Libby, on what was the amount based? We are assuming we are paying 47000 to the Penobscot Indians and 34000 to the Passamaquoddy Indians. That is not a fixed sum, as I understand it. Mr. Cowan. No. I guess it is based on the needs. They have been regarded as state wards, and for the last quite a number of years, they have been treated very well. I asked Shea last year when he brought up this subject if he had rather, if he and his people had rather, have whatever rights might be due them in cash from the state or have 50000 a year that the state is giving them. He said, quote, I am not that much of a damn fool. I had rather have the $50,000 a year. So that ended that subject. Chairman Dow, this fellow that comes to the legislature, how did he get his credentials uh, down there to come here if he was not a member of the tribe? Mr. Cowan, he was adopted into the tribe. He came in under this present law of which there have been considerable criticism. Chairman Dow, and by their adopting him into the tribe, he became a state ward? Mr. Cowan, yes. Chairman Dow, so all these Canadian Indians could come down and be adopted and become state charges? Mr. Cowan, yes, and we support them. 
Mr. Pelletier, have there been any Indians from Canada coming down and gaining adoption in our Indian tribes? Mr. Cowan, oh yes, this was present. Rep- this present representative to the legislature is French. Mr. Pelletier, has there been very general that situation? Mr. Cowan, I think quite a few. I would not be surprised if twenty-five percent of that of that Penobscot tribe are either Canadian Indians or children of Canadian Indians on one side or the other. Mr. Pelletier, that gives rise to another question. Are the Canadian Indians in Canada taken care of in anything similar manner to the way ours are here? And if they are not, wouldn't that give rise to the temptation for them to come over here where they could be taken care of? Mr. Cowan, I don't know how they take care of their Indians there. <clears throat> Mr. Libby, I know of one tribe on Indian Point in New Brunswick. I I don't know how much the province of New Brunswick gives them in actual cash, but they have a colony, church, schools, fishing rights in the river, and no white man can fish there without an Indian guide. And they do a lot for the Indians. Mr. Cowan, when I was a kid in Old Town, they all attended one church and had one school taking care of them. Now they've got two different religious organizations in a small group, and these two religious organizations are more or less pulling apart, and it makes it harder to consider what will be best for them because you don't know when you talk with them whether he is talking honestly or whether he is mad with the other fellow because he belongs to the other religious sect. Chairman Dow, it is your understanding that 500 of these Canadian Indians could march down here today and be adopted and we would have to have them there? Mr. Cowan, I do not think there is anything to curb them. Mr. Libby, there are no restrictions about an Indian crossing the border, as I understand it. Mr. Cowan, we have very liberal Indian laws we don't live up to. For instance, under our treaties, they have free rights of fishing and hunting. We do not grant them that. Of course, they are tax-free. We require them to pay an excise tax on their automobiles. They do not understand that, and we tell them that it is not a tax at all. It is an excise payment for a privilege. They say, it looks like to me like a tax. We are talking of the federal government. The federal government says it is a tax. The land bank comes down here with some automobiles, and they say the federal statute says, we shall be wholly tax-free, so we shall not pay the excise tax. And we tell them that is not a tax. It is a charge for a privilege. And they say, Look at the case of White versus Land Bank. Mr. Payson, is there anything in this treaty we took over from Massachusetts about licensing the automobiles? Mr. Cowan, it does not seem to mention automobiles or airplanes. Chairman Chairman Dow, do you make do you make them get a fishing license? Mr. Cowan, they have to get a fishing license. I don't know whether they pay for it or not. You see, under the treaty, they could hunt anywhere they wanted to anytime. But the courts have said, of course, very definitely, both here and in other states and the United States Supreme Court, said they must be governed by local restrictions. Mr. Weber, this Passamaquoddy thing, there there was simply the agreement between Massachusetts and the Passamaquoddy tribe in 1834. It is rather ingenious because, on the one hand, the Indians gave up all the lands they have had in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and the consideration for that was they gave back to the Indians certain restricted areas of the same land. Nobody could make money trading that way. That's the end of the Cowan transcript. So, um, Harold, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, 
I was struck by the tone between um, Mr. Weber and Mr. Cowan, and I realized that both are Bowdoin College graduates, so they have probably multiple other social connections. There was a sense of familiarity between them. It starts off with Frank, first name. Um, and um, the second part was the callousness with which uh, the committee, as well as the attorney general, talk about uh, the facts. In other words, uh, Cowan supposedly has done background research as the top legal official in the state government, which is the guardian of the tribes as, quote, wards. And I thought to myself, if this is a guardian for a ward, let's say a person with a, uh, who's a minor, would you trust these people with the uh, affairs of these wards because they're woefully ill-prepared, ill-informed. So I cannot even begin to dissect the uh, sloppiness with which Mr. Cowan is referring to the tribes. He's having all the dates wrong. Uh, it doesn't uh, use, it's not useful to start uh, nitpicking about that. Uh, suffice to say that his grounding in um, main tribal uh, state relationships in terms of treaties is uh, shallow at best. Um, that said, uh, an indicative is something that um, Mr. Cowan said, and I'm quoting, uh, that was stated earlier, but I'm quoting it to make my point. Uh, this is Cowan speaking. As long as the Indians stay on the island, I do not think they ever will amount to anything as citizens. And I think we are very right in not recognizing them as citizens in spite of the federal statute because they are no good over there. They are just about like the brown total colony in Athens, a little higher grade. Um, that colony is no longer known, but that is north of Norwich was actually in West Athens, uh, a small hamlet um, north of Norwich uh, in the uh, woods on the edge there of vast hinterland. And that's where a so-called pauper colony lived who were uh, accused of uh, heavy inbreeding they were basically seen as imbeciles with a heavy criminality rate. There's a lot of uh, legal cases uh, between 1895 and 1905. And I was thinking about the period in which this particular interview took place in 1942. That's, of course, during the height of the eugenics movement as well. And the reference here to the uh, island um, inhabitants as a kind of an isolated pocket and the comparison that Cowan is making with that uh, brown total colony, um, that's actually two families that were heavily interrelated. Um, apparently close uh, cousin marriages were going on. And the case of, or the site of a very famous murder case in 1905, uh, where the patriarch of the um, pauper colony uh, in a drunken fit um, killed a man who was sleeping with his wife, and he was sentenced to state prison for 20 years. Uh, it was a spectacular headline-grabbing uh, news story. It had a lot about the imbecility of the um, brown total colony. And I was thinking that precisely when Cowan and Weber are kind of cozying up there in the room, um, Bowden brothers knowing each other, uh, not feeling the need to particularly be prepared for anything, in terms of being serious about their own charges, um, I was very, very struck uh, by the um, attitude that's 
explains that lack of seriousness. And that is nothing but um, a white superiority complex we've often talked before. And I was thinking about um, the number of Penobscots already in the military service at that time, getting ready to be shipped off to North Africa. Uh, the first one had already died, Pius, Pius Domer. Uh, soon thereafter, uh, other Penobscots would die. And um, the attitude of these people there in Augusta, uh, commenting on these people, and I'm thinking about Florence Nicola Shea, who just before had written her small history of the Penobscot nation uh, that clearly Cowan has not read, but she's talking about the treaties as worthless scraps of paper or something like that. And she's absolutely right. And she compares the state government uh, basically with uh, the dictatorship uh, under Mussolini in Italy, which is, of course, very pertinent to that time. And the king there was a puppet king, uh, Emmanuel III, and she basically compares the puppet king to the, to the chief of the Penobscot nation, and, um, but really under the thumb of, of the dictator Mussolini. And so her attitude as the wife of Leo Shea and the daughter of Nic- uh, Nicolai, um, Joseph Nicolai, both tribal representatives, and uh, Leo Shea, his father was a tribal representative, Sabata Shea, that family had a huge amount of exposure to the attitudes um, in, in Augusta. And um, so I will leave it at that. There was just so much out there that is so indicative of the prevalent mode of thinking. And if you want to see an illustration of hegemony that's not just political or economic, but also ideological, it made me aware of the incredible importance of the fact that um, if you have people dealing in, with Indian issues, Indian rights issues, who have no clue about Indian history, that they should not be allowed to judge. And that means that the, the main law school, minimally, should make it a requirement for everyone who is dealing in any issue with dealing with Native peoples in Maine, they should have a mandatory course in um, basic Wabanaki history, uh, not just Indian law in general, so that you don't get judges, which we still have today, who are woefully ill-informed. We had a case with the sovereignty of the river case where I said to the, our legal team, if the judge is lazy, we will lose. If he's intellectually curious and we will is willing to learn, we may win. And we lost, and thereby I had, quote, proof, end quote, of the fact that this particular judge, an old judge born and raised in Bangor, was part of that same kind of mentality that I find here so painfully exposed. And I want to thank you, Donna, for having brought this to the attention of your audience. Okay. Um, So I'm interested in the law school uh, reference. And so I'm going to go to uh, Joe for your comment. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Donna. Uh, Great to be here. Um, Yeah, I will say, as as Harold shared those thoughts uh, immediately, I I thought back to my own time at Maine Law. I'm a graduate. from 2015. And that is absolutely the type of thing that I think should be required. I would totally support an effort to do that. And Harold, to your point, I mean, that's something that I would be enthusiastic about taking. I know when I was there, um, there were quite a few courses offered, but none that were in the particular field that we're discussing now, which would be uh, Indian law, but specifically Maine Indian law. And it was certainly something that I had the opportunity to look into uh, through the main law review and self-study and through some um, writing mentorships with staff there. But again, I think making that more generally available to the student body and even making it a requirement, 
um, would be would be a wonderful endeavor, something that I think a lot of people would support. And just in having been to the new law school uh, recently to to give a talk on our paper, it's a beautiful building. But a lot of the students were really enthusiastic about uh, Maine Indian law, and I think that there's a lot of energy and interest from the students in something like that. And I think it would be very well received. So those are my thoughts on on the law school connection, Donna. Um, would you like to continue talking about those or should I share some thoughts on the uh, transcript as well? Go ahead, Joe. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Um, so what stood out to me here, and I, I think this is a, all of these transcripts are are very important, but I think some, there are particular parts that are of perhaps greater interest to the audience that I just want to circle back to. Um, in particular, just a few general observations before I, I quote a, a couple passages here. Um, the first thing that struck me is, as been, has been pointed out already today, um, we have Attorney General Cowan, who is the chief legal officer for the state of Maine. Um, and it was very interesting to me that in giving this testimony, uh, he was making a lot of non-legal conclusions that were based on opinion. Um, that's concerning to me in that the purpose of this testimony was to provide very specific legal perspective on the laws that apply and then the rationale behind those laws to help the lawmakers understand what they're doing. <laughs> and to me, providing speculation, for example, um, when asked to talk about the Webster-Ashburton Treaty and, and saying, yes, I'm familiar with the source, and then being asked about it, to give that advice in that council as the chief legal officer saying, well, I haven't read it in 30 or 40 years. Um, certainly, it's understandable that somebody may need time to become more familiar with a source, but it would be something you would hope would be available in preparation beforehand. Um, so that was a little bit concerning, very concerning, actually, to, to hear. Further, you know, we had a situation in which it appears the legislators were asking the question in their own words, what is an Indian? I believe that was what Chairman Dow asked, to which Cowan gives a personal anecdote, which, again, as as a legal officer, um, you know, I know he's not offering it in a courtroom, but this is recorded testimony. And it, it's just based on hearsay and speculation of what Cowan thinks, what he thinks he remembers someone might have told him. Um, with regard to a gentleman he refers to as Neil, and then Neil's lineage as potentially being a person uh, who's a Native American having indigenous bloodlines. And, you know, the response to this, it, it, where Cowan uses a racial slur to couch his opinion in this, this sort of hearsay, is responded to with, this is a freak of nature. So I think that that is, you know, anecdotally, but also based on the content, it's, it's a very alarming exchange. The most alarming exchange, in my view, um, comes on page seven of the document. So if your uh, audience is following along or listening back or, or plans to read this later, they should look for the page with the number seven up in the right-hand corner. And it comes about halfway down in which you have uh, Representative Mayo Payson, W. Mayo Payson. And I'm just going to read here if it's okay. It's only a few lines. And Mr. Payson says... Did you make your study from material available in the state library, or did you have any outside material? To which the Attorney General of the State of Maine responds, right here in the State House and down in the land office. My study, as you call it, I was digging into those things down there, and I kept running into this stuff. And I was checking up on the Indian Trust Fund, trying to find out the origin of it and find out why it was a certain amount, of course, 
And as I went back through the land office records, I began to get more and more dubious. I finally said, the Indian trust fund amounts to $138,000, period, and stopped right there. To which an elected representative in the state of Maine responds in recorded testimony, this is a skeleton in our closet. To me, that line, perhaps more than any other in these transcripts, sums up the spirit of what's going on here. Um, and I want to be respectful of others' time, so I'll pass it on to the next speaker. But what that tells me is that the state of Maine had been aware for some time that there were things that it knew that it necessarily didn't want to be publicly available information, or perhaps there were things that it knew it didn't know. And this process by which Cowan is getting up and trying to inform the audience, the, the elected audience, of this issue or or of these records shows me that it was not met with curiosity or, or acceptance and a willingness to really dig in and see what's going on, but instead with an effort to conceal and hide and put back into darkness. And to me, that's very concerning. Eric? Yeah, I want to pick up on, first on what Joe was talking about, putting things back in darkness. Um, and in particular, uh, reference back to the fact that the state of Maine made a unilateral determination to not publish the treaties, which are being referred to here in the Constitution as they originally agreed to. And I think that's really important because when you look at it, when you get to the current Settlement Act, you have to always remember that uh, the fundamental rule of construction, legal construction is a constitution always trumps a uh, statute. And we're looking at something where the constitutional provisions have been hidden from us. And we have people in the state today saying, oh, no, this settlement act is this is a law. It's absolute law without ever having referred back to does that settlement act violate any of those treaty provisions that were agreed to and are part of the Constitution. And I think. The reasoning behind that and, and what I find particularly troubling is uh, Cowan's two admissions. One is when he talks about, I do not believe there have been any new robberies to amount in anything in that time. Um, but then goes on, but you go back into the earlier history of the state and it would seem fairly apparent they were robbed left and right. And then Following up on what Joe was talking about, the next uh, um, few lines of the testimony are from uh, Mr. Payson. And um, Mr. Payson, well, it goes, Mr. Payson says, this is a skeleton in our closet, which Mr. Cowan replies, well, I had a feeling it would be more than we wanted to see in that closet, so I closed the door. Mr. Payson replied, well, we were just talking about an expenditure of 100000 a year, capitalized at 2%. That would be in the vicinity of 50 million. That was in the mid 1940s. We're talking about a settlement act that was executed in the 1980s. Why I find this language so problematic is, um, as the tribes in Maine have been seeking recognition of, of tribal sovereignty in the current legislature, there have been a number of individuals, some from the governor's office, some former AAGs who actually worked on the settlement act who have weighed in and suggested that a treaty is a treaty and that's all there is to it. Well, there are a number of problems with that because what we actually have is a situation where the state of Maine knew they had robbed the tribes. They knew 
And I think there's a point, uh, yeah, where Mr. Weber says, wasn't there timber sold off by state officials? And you go on further, and there's a discussion that there were timber rights that were taken. The state of Maine knew that it had stolen land and timber from the tribes and then took the position that um, the tribes weren't entitled to anything in 1980. Uh, There's currently a disbarment proceeding right now in California for an individual who stepped up and made false representations to the court about what was going on and pushed something that was uh, illegal. And to sit there and go, especially from an attorney general's office, that, oh, we're here and we're, we're representing all the people of the state of Maine, which is their charter. They're supposed to represent everybody in the state of Maine. One, they've got a conflict of interest. But two, to say we're not going to reference these important issues, which actually have a significant impact for tri- the tribal negotiators. If someone were to come up to me and say, OK, you're negotiating for the tribe. We do have to recognize that there were some lands that were robbed. We have to recognize that there's the, the attorney general has previously admitted that we owe the tribes millions of dollars. Let's sit down and in good faith have a conversation about how we can remedy this situation. We instead take the position of we're not recognizing tribes. There are no tribes in Maine. It's problematic to me. Darren? Yeah, um, I mean, I think... uh... So much um, has been covered, and I just want to reiterate a, a few a few points. And I, I agree that um, you know it's it's one of these things that um, the language of the, the the racism the racism language. So you have all the way from criminality; they must be criminals to be they must be children. They must you know like it just almost grabbing at straws around sort of the 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 frameworks of 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 racism um and um you know how that kind of plays out with a level of ignorance i i suppose some people believe that uh racism and ignorance are tied together i think uh in in many in many ways that is true i think it is also tied together in in the the framework that we have here which is um in essence a a kind of um a collusion for a cover-up uh the this they openly use the language of of a cover-up they uh skeleton in the closet the robberies i closed the book i stopped right there you know all of these things that kind of um you know they knew of the criminality uh they even are flagrantly i suppose this is this happens all the all the time uh, uh now but they're like oh federal laws we don't really like them even though they, they should apply here we shouldn't apply them um now all of that you know um and and as harold has 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 put forward in 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 great in a great way in terms of you know, we just celebrated uh, Native American uh, Veterans Day, and thank you for your service, Donna. I appreciate that. Um, the the uh, the idea that on the one hand these are both criminals and children in 1942, and uh, our our folks uh, are, are fighting uh, against fascism in Europe at that very same time. Somehow, we are both criminals and children, despite our giving the 
biggest sacrifice we can give. So this, you know, is infuriating. Um, and it's a diminishment of any of the things that, and, and that's just a baseline. Like that is just a baseline of the, um, framework that is, um, cri- you know, in my opinion, criminal, uh, because it's, it's almost like the, the tapes of, uh, you know, a former president saying, yeah, I have all the, the documents I know they're not that they're still classified. You know, it's almost like the smoking gun that we all always thought was probably there. Uh although it was vague enough where because they say things that are so um ignorant around just the basic history of and the context of, of federal Indian law and a lot of other things that you're kind of like, oh well maybe they didn't know. You know, like it, it's it's plausible, <laughs> but I think you you know I think a part of this work that you've done so well, Donna, and and with with all you know with so many partners is to unearth the idea that in fact they knew, uh, in fact they it was an attempt to, to cover up, and in fact um, you know this idea that there was a skeleton in the closet they they were worried about, and that in fact and this is i think the connection i want to make and 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 and, and eric uh, uh kind of referenced uh, built this up uh, to a certain extent was they they were able to get rid of all of these skeletons in 1980 and they didn't have to pay a cent for it you know the federal government paid all the cents for all these skeletons and all those things so the idea then that we kind of have this you know state that is you know be you know somehow burdened by the indian where it is consistently taken from us and their skeletons were solved by this 1980 settlement um is just uh crazy making harold yeah um the opening of um the show today was by with a quote from mr weber Bowdoin College graduate asking another Bowdoin College graduate, and he was asking basically for pearls of wisdom. And I thought to myself, what kind of pearls of wisdom were actually shared in that particular session? Because if these were pearls of wisdom, um, that would indicate to me the incredible low value uh, that people have for pearls because uh, what we got was basically very poorly prepared, ill-informed testimony by the Attorney General of the State of Maine. With regard to the um, skeleton, the stunning thing is when I read that, that's exactly the same language I heard in 1983 or 1984 when I spoke to the legal counsel for Governor Brennan about the Mi'kmaq recognition uh, Bill that we uh, actually was the, the preparing for the recognition bill because I had internal memos from the um, uh, from the um, from Governor Brennan and to Patterson John Patterson at the time and many others I had internal memos copies of thereof and I had carefully studied them and I knew that the state of Maine was aware in particular Governor Brennan at the time that the Mi'kmaq were left out from the Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act. So I basically raised that issue to legal counsel. He recently passed away. Um, and I remember him saying to me, literally, uh, that, that um, uh, about the skeleton in the closet. And I said to him, I want to add as a joke, 
uh, one more skeleton to that closet. And uh, we laughed. But that's how we got the first um, ash hunting bill. Uh, he sent me to the, the director of the Land Bureau Management or land, Bureau of Land Management across the river. Um, I forgot his last name now, but Bernie something. And that's how we had the first recognition from the state of Maine for the um, Aroostook Mi'kmaq Council at the time that later became the Aroostook Band of Mi'kmaq and is now called the Mi'kmaq Nation. Um, but the mentality of that um, these skeletons in these closets that certainly endured until 1983, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, with the current ongoing issue about uh, sovereignty rights here in the state of Maine, um, uh, that that may still be a mentality that is uh, prevalent in the Attorney General's office. Joe? Thanks, Donna. <clears throat> you know, thinking about some of the language used here. And I think, you know, Harold, you bring up the pearls of wisdom quote, which is interesting to me because I agree. I'm, I'm not sure there were any pearls of wisdom that were so generously, you know, handed out that day. Um, and I, I, I have to admit, I can't tell if it's in jest or sarcastic or if it's meant literally, but if you look at the end of page 11 and going on to page 12, they're talking about, the quote liberal Indian laws in the state of Maine that are not followed and taxation and what they're referring to as an excise payment for the privilege of operating an automobile. And again, I, I suppose this could be made in jest, but it appears to be quite literal. One of the legislators asks whether there was anything included in the treaty from Massachusetts that talks specifically about licensing automobiles to which the attorney general replies that it does not mention automobiles or airplanes. And I don't say this to to embarrass or to demean, um, but I, it, it to me potentially shows that we're dealing with individuals that are just not ostensibly these are accomplished and uh, objectively intelligent leaders in the community. They've been elected to public office. They've gone to many of them have gone to school um, and had uh, higher education. But if you just take one second and think about the timeline here, and, and I do defer to uh, to Dr. Prinz on this, but um, the history of the automobile and aviation, certainly um, they do not predate the, any of the treaties that Massachusetts would have entered into and which Maine would have taken over. So again, it, it could entire, I wasn't there in that room, um, but I only have what's in front of me. And, you know, it does lead me to believe that perhaps this was not approached with the level of careful attention to detail and an understanding of the foundational documents um, that were at issue here. And, and I guess the point I would put on that is this, in my view, uh, I grew up in Maine. I, I love living in Maine. I'm proud to be from Maine. Um, and I say that because these documents and whatever Attorney General Cowan looked at in the land records office that day that caused him to close the door and keep the skeleton in the closet, those are our papers. They belong to the people of the state of Maine. And ostensibly, they exist. And we have here, because of efforts of people like you, Donna, um, who are bringing these documents to light, they're, they're, quote, hidden in plain view, but they exist. And I think it deserves what didn't happen in 1942. It deserves a careful look, because there's really, from the perspective of the people that are doing this work and want to have the truth out there, there is nothing to hide, and the records will speak for themselves. And I think this transcript in particular does just that. If you just let the words of the people speak and you listen, you will hear that this is something that is worthy of being looked into again. And frankly, for the first time, perhaps being done with a careful eye to detail. 
Uh, I wanted to build on something that Professor Ranko had been discussing, and that is the federal government's payment of the uh, Land Claims Settlement Act. And uh, he had referenced the fact that the state didn't pay anything for that, even though we hear over and over again, uh, oh, the, the state of Maine paid for this. State of Maine didn't pay anything for it. It was out of the federal government. But what struck me as I looked on page four of the transcript was Cowan's uh, statement as to uh, the principal idea of the treaties with the tribes, even prior to the Land Claim Settlement Act. And it says, quote, the principal idea at this time seemed to be to get the lands and rights and pay nothing for them. Uh, thinking of that in the context of the Land Claim Settlement Act, that seems to still be the principal idea that the state of Maine gets the uh, lands and rights and pays nothing for it. And again, the the, the second issue I have is uh, from a, a legal standpoint, when you have the Attorney General of the state of Maine in 1942 saying, I have serious doubt that there, if it were put up on a contract relations, that there would not be considerable difficulty. What he's saying is, if the uh, tribe had gone to court at that point in time, the state was going to lose. Now, he said they're not going to get their title back, and they're not going to get title to the lands, but the state will lose. We'll get a credit for what we paid them, but we are going to lose. The um, extent to what the, the state put the tribes to and the pressures they put the tribes under to sign the the Land Claim Settlement Act is at odds with their recognition of what they knew their obligations were at that point in time. Um, they knew that they owed the tribes. And to tell the tribes, well, if you don't do this now, there's a new administration coming in. You might not get anything. Um, and we're going to continue fighting when they knew that they owed us. And they knew they have said they closed the door on it, knowing what they owed the tribes millions. Um, I find that problematic from a legal justice point of view. Um, that's not justice. That's gamesmanship. And I think the other thing that I wanted to hit on was was what Dr. Prince had talked about. Um, I think it is an error for us to think that the law exists in a vacuum. And I think when we start talking about law school, um, we need to understand not only the legal issues that are involved, but also the historical and sociological issues that are involved. The law does not exist in a vacuum. Um, and in fact, most of the time, the challenges we find individuals face in the court system are not strictly legal in nature. They are psychological and sociological. Um, it is a multi, the only way that the law is effective is recognizing the multidisciplinary issues that bring people in contact with them. And so the idea of having some coursework uh, done at the law school level, um, I think, is an excellent idea. Darren? Yeah, and I want to echo um, that in, in what Joe said, is that there's a real thirst for this uh, among students, um, both that um, in the context of policymaking and the law school, in the context of um, so much of the work we do related to even trying to get lands back, uh, trying to protect uh, the cultural and natural resources um, uh, of our of our tribal nations here. And I think, um, 
you know, that's, you know, perhaps part of the, you know, uh, the you know i think a lot of people gen x and older like to um criticize younger generations but their their feel for what is just and their feel for the engagement and responsibility towards justice is is really um impressive and um it is curious in in all the in all the good ways as well um and i think you know that that strikes me as part of this notion of, yeah, you know, as 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 Judge Bennett uh, just just mentioned that, you know, at some point people will be will say things like, well, that was a, you know, you hear from some of the political opponents we face in the tribes now, that's just the done deal, 1980, that's it, it stopped, and that was the deal, the you know, forever and ever and ever, um, but of course they, you know. You know, we just read <laughs> from uh, uh, thirteen pages of where the operatives uh, of the state government in the in the nineteen forties did not see things in in such a bright uh, line fashion of a deal is a deal and we keep our word and everyone plays by this game. You know, I mean, they were literally trying to find ways to get out of any of these deals and games. And now that there's a sense that. The principles of the state of Maine seemingly have changed, you know, so dramatically that now it is this is these are deals that uh, must be unchanging for 50, 100 years. You know, um, they never had that attitude <laughs> before uh, they felt like they were in in an advantage uh, starting in 1980. So it's 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 just so um, filled with this. Um, you know, it's just frustrating. I wish people you know, I'm I'm on the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, and I'm involved in a lot of these issues. Uh, and it, you know, people take these positions that are just positions uh, that are out of political expediency, and they don't even really know enough at times to answer the you know one or two follow up questions. Two, like why is their position that 1980 is so fixed? Um, and I think that that's you know, I wish just there would just be more honesty maybe about it. Uh, even if, you know, if you're like, oh, well, yeah, I like 1980 because that, that's good for me or my position. That, because if, if, if it is that and not something about like, you know, oh, I have questions or I'm unsure or what, you know, the things that people who are lying tell us, um, then at least we can have an honest discussion and an open discussion around the frameworks of, of change. And I think that that's, you know, um, part of me is heartened by reading this. This is my little last comment, because uh, I've mentioned this in the past that, you know, it's kind of like um, pushes my blood pressure up and I kind of bare knuckle, bare knuckle at the last few years when I've heard the judiciary um, um, debate our sovereignty bills with, with the level of sort of with how little they know. Right. Um, and then to see this, I realize, oh, well, this is, status quo they weren't newly ignorant about our history and the whole indian context it has been a uh you know decades or hundreds of years in the making where they just the decision makers in augusta just are patently ignorant um 
sometimes, as they've said, you know, on purpose, where they just they're like, that's a skeleton, I don't want to know more. And they just bury it that way. But it is an interesting kind of connection where I maybe I feel less bad about how level <laughs> the level of the current because that now there are people who are champions of setting this right on the judiciary who actually have an, a fairly extensive knowledge and have, have taken it on um, to be very serious about. So that that's this may be my change of heart. Okay, so uh, I'm going to leave it at that for this show. Um, so thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Webinaki Windows. I want to thank Judge Eric Menert, Attorney Joe Gauss, Professors Harold Prince and Dan Ranko for being on the show. Um, and uh, the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from the CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>